This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times radio show. You can listen live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1, uh, on your DAB radio, smart speaker, or on the app. Lovely. Uh, but we bring you the best bits here in case, I don't know, you're busy working or something or when in the country. Who knows? If you ever want to get in touch, let me know about the, what you think about the podcast. You can email me, matt.chorley at times.radio, or you can tweet me at Matt Chorley. Lots of you do. Good and bad. But it's always nice to hear from you. Right, coming up on today's episode, 50 years ago, more than half of men and more than 40% of women smoked. Today, it's about 14, 15%. How did that happen? We speak to Ash, the anti-smoking campaign group, about the politics of trying to get people to kick the habit. And we've got Patricia Hewitt, who was the health secretary who banned smoking indoors in England. Uh, so that's coming up as our big thing in just a moment. But first, as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel. Normally it's night at the Marriott, but James Marriott is off, I don't know, resign, revising for his mock GCSEs or something. So instead, uh, we've got John Stephens from the Daily Mail and India Knight from the Sunday Times. So let's talk Christmas. Are we all partying at Christmas? Um, uh, Quasi Quartog was all for it a few weeks ago. He, was, he insisted the business department had already booked their venue and now... Uh, his colleague, uh, the business minister, George Freeman, saying he's going to be toasting his colleagues on Zoom. A thoroughly depressing uh, spectacle. Je- John, um, the politics of Christmas and Christmas parties is fraught, isn't it? People, Some people love it. Other people think that Boris Johnson should be cancelling it and throw into the mix the Daily Mirror story this week that, that um, they were partying in number 10 last Christmas when you definitely shouldn't have been doing that. Yeah, and I think the government have been really keen this time round that not to govern by diktat. They're worried that if they create too many rules that people become frustrated. They know that from the first lockdown, it was fine for people to be told exactly what to do in precise details. But since then, they've been keen to avoid that. But I think whatever the government says, I think a lot of people are going to start cancelling their Christmas parties. If you're a company and you're worried about your workers getting sick, are you really going to want to put an event that's going to be blamed as a super spreader event? And if you're an employee, you know, we're getting so close to Christmas and I know a lot of people are jabbed, but are you really going to, is the balance of the risk, do you want to go to that party and risk getting COVID over Christmas and not being able to see your family? Or maybe that would be quite a good thing to do. Or do you think, actually, is it worth it? I'm going to avoid doing that and be able to go through with my Christmas plans. 
What do you think, India? Would you uh, be attending a, a works Christmas do? No, nothing, nothing um, large scale, I don't think. Um, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think Christmas feels like it's imperiled anyway. You know, we're all waiting to hear whether further uh, restrictions are going to be imposed and whether it's going, it, whether it might be cancelled altogether. Um, and I think people are really not willing to take any additional risks at all. I think everybody's working towards, you know, save Christmas again and doing everything they can possible to avoid a situation where they endanger themselves or anybody else. Yeah, it was interesting. Yesterday we spoke to a guy who runs a company which does testing um, uh, and, you know, and offering it for companies so that everyone can have a lateral flow test before they go to their Christmas party. But he admitted they've cancelled their Christmas party. Mm. So even there, even they weren't confident enough that the idea of testing was was enough. Uh, John, how bad do you think this this Daily Mirror story is about what went on almost exactly a year ago in Number Ten? Is it too long ago to have an impact? Um, is it because it, it feels? somehow different of Dominic Cummings and the Barnard Castle thing. But then I don't know. Maybe it will get cut through and people will get very cross about this idea that there was a Christmas party happening on December the 18th last year when, if we all try to remember, Tier 3 meant that that was very much not allowed in the rules. Yeah, I mean, speaking to people in Number 10 yesterday, I think they thought they could ride this one out. It would be one day of headlines and it would go away. But I think actually it being exactly a year ago and we're starting to talk about Christmas parties again actually gives the story more value again i think if we were talking about this in the summer and people think oh that must be ages ago a ghost christmas party but because we're now talking about actual people making decisions about whether they see friends and family over christmas whether they get to have fun with their colleagues i think that means that it actually has more of a news value what do you think india do you, do you mind yeah, what's think- going on I think it does have cut through, actually. Um, and I also think it's a really weird idea of um, of the number 10 comms team to wheel people out um, to go on the radio this morning saying that the rules were adhered to because the rules were don't have a party. So, you know, what are they talking about? They've admitted <laughs> or they haven't denied that, that, that there was a party or two parties, but now they're saying the rules were adhered to. But but everybody was locked down and in tier three. So it, that's that doesn't seem to me... That, I mean, it's really kind of a line that makes you think when you hear it, how stupid do you think people are? That's not going to wash at all. It's making it worse, actually. And the claims this morning, you know, people suggesting there were food, there was drinks, there's party games. I mean, that doesn't sound like an average day in the office to most people. No. I think most people think that that is a bit of a joke. Yeah, and I mean, there's a, I suppose there's a difference between if after a long and busy week, uh, somebody passed around a paper cup of fizz before they all went home. Mm. That's one thing. I think once you've got into organised games... Uh, I think if some, once somebody <laughs> brings out the twister mat, you know, <laughs> it's, um, it ramps things up a bit. I mean, I mean, imagine, though, I assume if they got Lulu Little to design it, the twister mat would have been very, you know, it would have been very tasteful uh, and expensive. diamonds, yeah. Yeah, a wicker, a rattan uh, <laughs> twi- a, a twister mat. Now, John, I saw someone sort of reproduce, I can't remember who it was, but somebody yesterday reproduced the full lobby readout. So every day, uh, uh, journalists go to number 10 and ask the Prime Minister's official spokesman uh, questions on any, any topic they like. And somebody sort of reproduced the full exchange yesterday. It seemed pretty tortuous of how uh, they were trying to confirm that there may have been, uh, were, there were, they weren't denying there was a party, 
but uh, they were insisting that everything had abided by the rules, but they couldn't explain how a party could have abided by the rules. How 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 tortuous was it yesterday? I wasn't there, but it, you know, reading that transcript, it does look completely tortuous. The to and fro, and the questions, and then the spokesman saying, "Well, I." You know, it, I wasn't there. I may not have been, must not have been invited, and just uh, not really clearing things up at all. The question, the answers being very carefully worded. That you think, oh, I'm not really getting to the nub of the issue here. And actually, I think this is why Number Ten made a wise decision and never putting these briefings on TV. I think if you had the scene of that being broadcast to the country, people would think <laughs> Number Ten was really taking the Mickey with them. Uh, yeah, I think you could. Uh, I think you could well be right. Uh, let's um, let's move on. Uh, for, well, given the well, what, one of the things we've got in number ten was also a leaving party. We're not sure whose that was. Quite a lot of people left about that time last year. Uh, but somebody else is having a leaving party today. Angela Merkel bowing out after sixteen years as German Chancellor with a military tattoo held in her honour uh, before she formally hands over to Olaf Scholz. Um, she's got the full works. I love the fact she's got this sort of full. Um, uh, you know, military parade, mm. but uh, with, with uh, choosing songs uh, by uh, her own choice of songs played by a marching band, including this this sort of punk song. What would you have, India, if you were bowing out? I'm not sure, but I really love her for having a 1980s German punk song played by um, played by the military band. I really love her. I think she's extraordinary, and I'll really miss her actually. Because, well, partly because the fact that she was the first woman chancellor um she she dealt with her with the the fact of being a woman very impressively i think by effectively just kind of ignoring it and getting on with it and i also like how she showed that it's possible to be a pragmatic conservative um but not be either massively dislikable or a populist um and i think you know lots of people will be mourning her her political loss. I mean, it's also interesting that she lost power despite being uh, hugely popular, which is kind of a warning for Tories who think it might be a good idea to get rid of Johnson, I think. <laughs> and John, I was sort of reflecting, I, I was sort of thinking about this. So I first started working in Westminster covering British <coughs> politics, I think just before she became Chancellor. It's extraordinary given that everything that's happened since then and everyone that's come and gone you know, in that time, in Westminster, we've seen Tony Blair, Gordon Brown, David Cameron, Theresa May, you know, every chancellor, leader of the opposition, every policy that's coming. And during that entire time, Angela Merkel's still been there. And her relationship mm. with um, British politicians, John, seems to have been sort of much the same. They always think she's going to ride to their rescue, and she, she rarely does. Yeah, well, that was the mistake that obviously David Cameron made over Brexit. That's one of the mistakes that Boris Johnson seems to have made about Brexit. But I think part of her whole attitude is being that steady politician, no frill, serious. And I think that's why she's kind of got so much attention in other places that she has been the antidote to people like Boris Johnson, Emmanuel Macron, all that kind of willy-waving. It is very different attitude that she's taken. But there are questions in Germany about what are the actual things that have happened in the last 16 years that you can point to as Angela Merkel things when she's really changed things? What have been policies that she's come up with that haven't been from her predecessors? And I think that's where it's slightly more difficult. Is there value, do you think, India, in just being a bit dull? Maybe that's the answer to longevity. It might not be the answer to radical uh, reform. 
Yes, I think there is value in being dull, absolutely. But also, but I wouldn't call her dull. I think she's had a really kind of extraordinary, her life has been extraordinary. I love the fact that she's fundamentally a kind of boffin. You, you know, she's a, yeah. she's a, what is she's a, she's a, a chemist, isn't she? Chemist or physicist? Can't remember. Anyway, something very clever. Married to another chemist or physicist, and you can sort of imagine their conversations. Um, but yes, there is absolute value in being just kind of quite solid and plodding on and carrying on. And you know, in in the end, you know, she's called Mutti, isn't she? Mother. Uh, I think she made people feel that they were in safe hands, maybe not particularly exciting hands, maybe hands that kind of drop the ball every now and then, but generally just kind of safe, good hands wearing sensible mittens, not lacy gloves. <laughs> I, think, I, think she's, I think she's great. Yeah, I've seen, I've now tried to picture Angela Merkel in lacy gloves, and that's not good for anyone. No, that's um, not she's good. Good. She uh, had a doctorate in quantum chemistry. That's uh, right. So that's like a, I think she's right, probably... A, Sorry to interrupt. I think she's probably going, well, I think she could possibly write the best political memoir ever. And I would read it with great interest. And also, I really want to know, um, do you remember that G7, I think it was a G7 summit, where um, where she and Barack Obama were bent over double laughing and Trump was, there, there was some sort of Trump thing in the background. And I want to know the cir- exact circumstances of the... <laughs> the Her... Her ability to um, just with a face sort of sum up uh, everything that's going mm. on in in politics. There was that weird. Did she? Was she? Was it her went in a boat? I think. I think. I, yeah, she in a boat um, with David Cameron. There was some summit in stock. Here we are. I've looked. At, oh, yeah, I actually wrote the story somewhere in Eastern Europe. Yeah, twenty fourteen. Yeah. He did his tour of different places trying to tee people up on Brexit and they had this rowing boat. Where was it? Was It was somewhere like... Sweden. Sweden. Yeah. Um, uh, um, what, he he went boat... No, so it was, this, it was some sort of... It's a bit like... I think it's the Swedish version of Chequers. The, um, uh, it's called Harpsbund. Oh, it's 120 kilometres west of Stockholm. Oh, I had all the details of my story about that. Frederick Reinfeldt's summer home. And apparently it's traditional that they all got... Um, uh, all got in a boat. So there's David Cameron, Angela Merkel, Frederick Reinfeldt, the um, Swedish PM, and the Dutch PM, Mark Rutte, in a small rowing boat. <laughs> I mean, God knows what goes through their minds when that... Um... <laughs> when that... But she must have done so many of those things. Oh, tradition dictates, apparently, that the host has to take them for a trip on the boat. I uh, presume that's why you only have has four, three people around it. Well, uh, but um, it, she must have so many of those things. She's been in the room for so many, mm. you know, massive political uh, events. I, I suspect that she might be the sort of person who might not write her yeah, uh, memoirs I know. or I might do that. one of those slightly dull sort of lessons in leadership. Yeah, it might be more Gordon Brown than Tony Blair. Those memoirs. Yeah, um, um, terrible <laughs> Let's let's round off the, our full tour of Europe. Then Emmanuel Macron has branded Boris Johnson a clown and a knucklehead, according to reports in France. Uh, this is the uh, the French. It's the French equivalent of uh, of sort of private eye, isn't it? It's, it seems to have mm. um, got hold of a conversation with Emmanuel Macron. I mean. Part of me thinks, is that the best he's got? Those of us who write jokes about Boris Johnson have got to, have had to come up with something better than it. He's a clown. Uh, like years ago, it doesn't seem that surprising to me. I suspect that Boris Johnson might say um, some uncharitable things about Emmanuel Macron behind closed doors as well, John. Yeah, I think number ten were actually quite relaxed about that. See that as the bit of the panto of the two and fourth, and they know that Boris Johnson indulges. 
as much as that on this side. I thought the number 10 source quote last night overnight was quite funny, saying that obviously the PM still thinks we have a strong relationship with France and our approach will not change, even if we have to wait until the other side of the French presidential election which is obviously a dig suggesting that he's playing up because he's going to go to the voters and also suggesting we might have the possibility of having someone else in the Elysee afterwards. I think what really annoyed number 10 yesterday wasn't the panto stuff about the clown and knucklehead. It was his comments about Northern Ireland when he said that this was a matter of war and peace. And I think that actually did annoy Downing Street when you're starting to talk about the words war and peace in relation to Northern Ireland. I think that was pretty ill-judged. What do you think, India? How, um, how, what does Johnson do about Emmanuel Macron? I don't think you should do anything really about Emmanuel Macron. I think it's all sort of it's all posturing, isn't it? Um, Johnson fools around because it makes him popular and Macron makes sonorous, over-the-top, very serious pronouncements for exactly the same reason. Um, so it's just kind of politics. Although I do think with Macron, there's a suggestion that he thinks that maybe the UK isn't serious, not just Boris Johnson. Um, and I think that might come back to bite him at some point in the future and his relation with um, other international leaders. I don't know, there's something quite... I just don't think people should pronounce... I don't think politicians, I don't think leaders should pronounce about other leaders quite in that way. I think it's it, it's potentially sort of problematic, but I don't think it matters terribly in this instance either. John Stevens and India Night there. And you can read India in the Sunday Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next... Kicking the habit, it's 50 years of ash. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.
You're listening to the Red Box Podcast now. It's time for this. Now, do you smoke? When was the last time you lit up? Well, during the 1970s, the UK had the worst death rate from smoking in the world. It was the main cause of half of the deaths of middle-aged men and a quarter of middle-aged women. Well, in 1971, Action on Smoking and Health, a.k.a. ASH, nice acronym, uh, was established by the Royal College of Physicians as a lobbying group to warn of the dangers of smoking cigarettes and pressure the government to discourage it. Well, ASH's first chairman, the epidemiologist Chris, uh, sorry, Charles Fletcher, wrote the original medical reports on the hazards of smoking in the 60s. 20 years later, in 1984, smoking rates had begun to fall. This is him back in 1984 explaining how ASH became an effective pressure group. But ASH has been an important organisation. At first, we were pretty ineffectual. We tried to raise a lot of charitable money to give us help, but we failed in our appeal. We only made very small amounts of money. But then we recruited a most remarkable young man called Mike Daub. And he was really a, a, a born pressure group man. And he converted Ash from a voluntary and a lot of voluntary a agencies trying to do something in a half-hearted way into a real pressure group. And he was really magnificent, the way he bought, built it up, got on the right side of, uh, of government, got on the right side of MPs. Um, when we were set up, Keith Joseph, who was then Minister of Health, had given us, Secretary of State for Health then, had given us a grant of £25,000 to get going and said that was the last. But by the time Mike Daub had been with us for two years, we got regular subvention from the Department of Health and we've been financed by the Department of Health ever since. The remarkable thing has been that at last lobbying of MPs has resulted in one thing, and that is that the Chancellor now has been steadily increasing the price of cigarettes by increasing tax. Not only that, but he stated in his... Uh, statement to Parliament, he stated, I'm doing this because of the very strong medical lobby that has approached me about this. That was the last mm. thing. And during the last few years, we've seen smoking decline for the first time rapidly in the working classes. Now, before that, between 1951, when Dolan Hill started their doctor survey, and 1971, when they stopped, doctors had cut their smoking from 65% uh, of doctors smoking down to uh, 20%. I believe since then it's dropped to about 10%. In the general public, in social class one, it's mm -hmm. dropped from, in men, 65% down to about 38%. Uh, it's got under 40%. Mm -hmm. And in women, from about 45% down to about 34%. And now, uh, smoking is now a minority ha habit in the country. And um, the most important influence of this has been the chance of the exchequer increasing the price. Whenever there's a price increase, people stop smoking. Well, that was uh, the former uh, head of ASH, Charles Fletcher. He was the first chairman of ASH, speaking back in 1984. Uh, and thanks to the Medical Sciences Video Archive at Oxford Books, Books University for digging that out of the archive for us. Well, let's now speak to the current chief executive of ASH, Deborah Arnott. Hi, Deborah. Morning. Can you hear me? I can, yeah. I can hear you now. That's, uh, thank you okay. very much for, for joining us. Now, the really striking thing is even looking back at 90, uh, when Charles was speaking there, back in 1984, around that time, about a third of people smoked. Now, I mean, it's halved since then, uh, basically, hasn't it? 
Yes, it has. In the population as a whole, it's now 13.9%. Um, I mean, he was talking about um, uh, the, the rates coming down in the poorest and most disadvantaged, but unfortunately, they haven't come down as fast. So while the average for the population is only 13.9%, actually nearly a quarter of people in routine and manual jobs um, smoke. And for, for any indicator of disadvantage, it's high. It's, um, for, for example, for um, people who live in social housing, it's uh, well over a quarter. For um, uh, homeless people, it's way, way above that. In fact, you know, many homeless people living on the streets die. They mostly die from respiratory disease. And the fact that they smoke um, makes it more likely that they will die. So there are, there's still lots of disadvantage, and that's our priority going forward. Forward. You know, an awful lot has changed, but a lot more has still to be done. Uh, let's um, bring in, uh, I mean, it was one of the biggest ch policy changes which uh, happened to uh, smoking policy was the introduction of the smoking ban on, in public places uh, in England. Uh, Patricia Hewitt was the health secretary from 2005 to 2007 and oversaw what was a pretty controversial piece of legislation. Morning, Patricia. Good morning, Matt. Now, I remember because this was I started I first started covering politics at Westminster in 2005. So I sort of watched the whole thing unfold. I thought, blimey, this is dramatic because people took, got very passionate about it. Um, what, when you when it was decided that this was the, the uh, a policy the government was going to take forwards, how um, controversial do you think it was going to be? And did you how did you settle on a ban on smoking in public places? Why not ban smoking altogether? Why not ban smoking in a smaller... Why, why was that the sort of the landing zone, if you like, that you ended up with? Well, there was, this was hugely controversial, Matt. So on the one hand, we had Ash doing their brilliant work. We had the BMA, who gave me a very hard time at my, the first of their conferences that I went to as health secretary, telling me it absolutely needed to be an outright ban, um, an, an outright ban, I should say, on smoking in all public places. But we had fought the election in 2005 on a manifesto that said we would exempt from the ban um, pubs that didn't serve food. And what had been going on inside the Labour Party and the Labour government was a real argument about, you know, were we in danger of becoming too much of a nanny state? Shouldn't a working class chap be able to go and have a pint and a fag in a pub? You know, this kind of stuff was going on. And the manifesto commitment um, was not helpful. Let me put it that way. So the argument that we were having inside government was absolutely mirrored by the argument that was going on on every a radio phone-in programme in every pub, in every community. But we ended up getting an overwhelming majority in the House of Commons on a free vote for a ban on smoking in public, enclosed public places. And what happened, and it's happened in every other place, I think, that has banned smoking in public places, Public support for the policy, which had been roughly 50-50, I think, before we did it, shot up. And it was quite extraordinary how quickly the controversy disappeared. And even today, I get people recognize, or thinking, you know, recognizing me in the street and coming up and saying, you did the smoking ban, didn't you? Best thing. Wonderful. Meant I could go into a pub or a bar and have a drink with friends 
and not come home stinking of cigarette smoke. It is extraordinary that the difference. I mean, the, the downside to that is it did so. It did reveal what pubs actually smelt like, which isn't always, but uh, in some cases, not hugely better. Um, Patricia, do you think that because it was the Labour Party doing it, and traditionally the party of you know the working man, was that easier or harder for you to pursue what was seen as a sort of encroachment on the hard-working man's right to a, a cigarette with his pint? Look, it was. <laughs> It was a really interesting debate. Kevin Barron, for instance, wonderful member of parliament from a very working class constituency. He was also, as it happened, a lay member on the General Medical Council, made a brilliant speech in the Commons debate about exactly the point, actually, that Deborah was making, that because smoking rates were so much higher in disadvantaged communities, and therefore, that was a major reason why their life expectancy was so much shorter. We should be bending over backwards to do everything possible to protect people in those communities from the huge danger of passive smoking, secondhand smoking, which was, you know, really the issue that at that point we were we were focusing on. But you know, I represented a very um, very disadvantaged set of communities in Leicester. And I have to say, one of the largest social clubs, working men's clubs in my constituency, was absolutely furious with me. They did everything they could to persuade me to allow for some kind of compromise, some kind of exemption, because they, like so many pubs, were terrified that if people weren't allowed to smoke on their premises, even, you know, in a special smoking room or whatever, then they would simply lose, you know, they, they would lose so many customers, they wouldn't be able to survive. Now, they have survived, but as we know, an awful lot of pubs have closed, and there's no doubt one of the reasons for that is the smoking ban. But the health benefits the health benefits have been huge. And I, I treasure the memory of Liam Donson, who was the chief medical officer at the time, who, of course, had been, you know, publicly as well as privately arguing the case for a complete ban on smoking in public places, came into my office about nine months, I think, after we introduced smoke-free legislation. And he said, I can't believe it. I'm already seeing a reduction in heart disease. Wow. And the, the thing that had changed was the smoking ban. It's interesting and, though, that you think you think that it did lead to pubs closing, but overall that was a price worth paying because of the extraordinary impact that's had on public health. Look, I, I'm not an expert on the reasons why pubs close. <laughs> and I think I think to be fair, you could make the argument that actually lots of pubs have adapted. And because they're now family-friendly places and serving food and so on, the ones that have adapted in that way are actually doing very well. Um, but a lot of publicans would tell you the, the smoking ban, you know, was a, was a real problem for them. And if that is the case, then I have to say, yes, I think it is a price, was a price worth paying because the health benefits, particularly, but not only amongst those disadvantaged communities the health benefits are huge Patricia Hewitt thanks very much for joining Patricia uh, former health secretary who guided uh, the ban on smoking uh, indoors in England onto the statute books uh, some quite 
lively debates in the House of Commons, I remember. I think Deborah Arnold, Chief Executive of Ash, you're back with us, Deborah. I am. And Patricia has a bit of a selective memory because she uh, told me, or her advisor told me, that the day of the vote, she was still trying to decide whether or not to vote for the comprehensive legislation. And it was on a, a, a free vote, not um, led by the Labour Party, uh, that the ban was secured. And we got a 200 majority. It was Kevin Barron who tabled amendments to the legislation, which didn't include pubs and, and clubs. Um, uh, which secured the comprehensive legislation. And um, I think it's important to remember that because actually the major um, changes in legislation have been secured by Parliament, not by governments. The smoking ban, the comprehensive smoking ban wasn't supported by Labour. Um, let's, bring it, let's, let, 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 let's let Patricia respond to that because I think Patricia's still on the line. Patricia's well, I, I, I made exactly the point that we had fought the 2005 election on a manifesto that had exemptions in it. So Deborah is absolutely right on that point. And it was because there were such disagreements inside government um, that actually we needed to have that free vote. So in that sense, yeah, we were, we were I think, behind the curve. And the manifesto commitment, which caused me enormous problems, um, as well as the pressure I was getting from within my own constituency, did mean, I think, we were behind where we needed to be on health grounds. So, you know, it was a clumsy kind of process, um, to put it mildly. But <laughs> the point is, we got there. And the arguments we were having were mirrored across the country, but we got to the right landing point. And it was the, yeah. you know, the single biggest factor in health improvements that we were able to achieve. Well, we'll, we'll dig into the public health uh, impacts uh, in just a moment. Patricia, thanks very much for uh, joining us. We'll, get, we'll keep Deborah with us uh, from Ash. In a moment, we're going to look at the actual difference that anti-smoking legislation has made uh, to public health. And we'll also hear from uh, someone from Forest, which is the group which... Uh, um, campaigns in favour of smokers. Uh, this is Matt Chorley on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Stripe, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Morning, nice to be with this match shortly on Times Radio. We're marking the 50th anniversary of Action on Smoking and Health, the campaign group ASH, which was established by the Royal College of Physicians in 1971 to warn of the dangers of smoking. We've still got on the line from ASH, the Chief Executive Deborah Arnold. But let's also bring in uh, Robert West, Emeritus Professor of Health Psychology at University College London and an expert on smoking cessation. Hi, Robert. Hi there. Explain to me the, um, the, 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 from your perspective, from a public health perspective, the real life impact of having so many people, you know, the fact that since Ash's creation, and they could probably claim some credit for this, uh, the number of people who smoke has, has more than halved. What impact does that have on health and actually on the sort of the NHS and the, and the, 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 the state structures of public health? Well, it, it's it's absolutely enormous. I mean, it, it's it's uh, it is quant. I, I would say it's unquantifiable, but it is quantifiable, um, uh, and it and it's vast it, in terms of the number of people uh, who are still alive who would otherwise be dead. 
a number of people, the number of people who are in good health, who would otherwise have chronic disease. And in fact, um, uh, as has been demonstrated many times, uh, in terms of the economy, because the um, because for a good economy, you need a healthy workforce uh, that, um, you know, that doesn't keep taking time off sick and doesn't uh, get sick and die before retirement age. So, so um, the, the, the benefit has been enormous. And I have to say, and, uh, you know, not wishing to or spare um, Deborah's blushes, Ash has played an absolutely pivotal role in this. And if you compare what's been achieved in the UK with, for example, countries, uh, other countries in Europe or other countries around the world, it's been quite extraordinary. And I think, I think you know, really credit to Ash um, for um, leading the charge, but also, you know, what they've done is they've, they've really brought the science of public health um, into government. And in mm. my experience, it's one of the real triumphs. It's hard sometimes to get science into government, uh, but I think Ash has done a terrific job with others uh, of doing that in the Department of Health. And when you say it's quantifiable, is there a figure, for instance, of the number of people who are alive today who wouldn't have been had it not been for, say, the smoking ban? There is one. I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, <laughs> uh, Deborah might know. I think it's hard to know exactly. There are there are various because the problem is that um, most of the people who were smoking in 1971 um, were already that their, their deaths were already baked in. Um, so we can't say exactly how many people's lives would have been saved. What we can say is that there's around 80 million um, more people who would be smoking today if we had the same smoking rates in 1971. And we do wow. know, of course, Robert, the immediate impact of the smoking ban, which Patricia Hewitt talked about and the, the, the CMO mentioned to her, which is that, um, you know, in the year after smoke, uh, the smoking ban came in, because cardiovascular health is affected immediately and also even low levels of smoke so secondhand smoke can trigger heart attacks in people who already have compromised systems i think in england alone it was about 1200 fewer admissions to hospital for heart attacks due to smoking uh, and the reduction in smoking exposure yeah actually um that's right and and i can put an annual figure on it um because currently we're looking at, I think the latest figures are about 60,000 deaths a year, 60,000 deaths a year still from smoking, with a smoking prevalence of around 14%. Previously, um, it, was, it was more than 100,000. In fact, I think it was about 120 to 150,000. And that would have continued, because if you look at countries that have not managed to get their prevalence down in the same way that the UK has, um, they continue to see those very high levels of mortality. Robert West, thank you very much for that. Robert West, Professor of Health Psychology at University College London. Emeritus Professor, I should get that right. Uh, let's finally bring in Simon Clark, uh, the director uh, at Forest, which is a pro-smoking campaign group. Uh, Simon, with all these, all these lives saved, you must surely want to congratulate Ash on their 50 years of successful campaigning. Uh, well, first of all, we're pro-choice, not pro-smoking. And yes, I'm very happy to congratulate Deborah and Ash. I think uh, 50th anniversary is an impressive achievement. And I'm sure that when Forrest celebrates our 50th anniversary in uh, a few years' time, she'll be happy to congratulate us as well. Um, I think the problem with Ash is that when it began, it began with the perfectly laudable aim of educating people about the health risks of smoking. But now it's become, in our view, a partisan pressure group that is constantly lobbying government 
to regulate uh, adults, their behavior, through a series of uh, policies and measures that really mount up to creeping prohibition. And of course, punitive taxation. Now, punitive taxation that we've seen on tobacco in recent years punishes adults who choose quite legitimately to smoke. And in some cases, it forces them further into poverty if they come from sort of working class backgrounds. And we've heard a lot in the last half hour about the smoking ban, but the reality is there are still a lot of people opposed to the smoking ban. The smoking ban made almost no impact on smoking rates in this country. I think between about 2007, when it was introduced, and 2011, smoking rates only fell by one or at most two percent. I mean, there's been a big drop in smoking rates over the last 10 years, but between 2012 and 2016, that was largely due to a lot of smokers switching over to e-cigarettes. And the great thing about e-cigarettes is that has empowered smokers who want to quit to switch to a safer nicotine product. But with all these sort of measures that Ash has been pushing and lobbying for over the last 10 to 15 years, um, many of them, are, I say, are designed to force, coerce people to give up. And there's really a form of bullying going on. So I think the tone of Ash's... Well, uh, let's, let, let's, let, let, let's, let's let Deborah uh, respond to, to, to that. And uh, uh, Deborah, your, your response to Simon. Well, first of all, Simon's organisation is funded by the tobacco industry. It's an astroturf organisation. And he promotes the right for people to smoke when he himself is not a smoker. He's bearing none of the risk. It's others who do. Um, and, you know, e-cigarettes, he only started promoting e-cigarettes when the tobacco industry started manufacturing them. I, I feel really passionately about this. Um, we've launched today um, a commemorative website for people who've died since we were set up from smoking. Um, and uh, we're asking others to add their stories. But I just want to add one from someone who I've known for over 20 years. And I knew her parents had died from smoking, but I didn't know quite how awful it was. This is what she told me. My parents both smoked. And my three brothers, my sister and me, we all grew up to be smokers too. None of us thought it would kill us, but smoking has wiped out nearly my whole family. My parents carried on smoking till their deaths. My dad in 1996, he was aged 64 and he died from a stroke. My mum two years later of emphysema. They still smoked when they died, and that, but their deaths didn't stop us smoking either. When my brother Georgie died of lung cancer aged 50 and Sean of throat cancer aged 55, they hadn't quit smoking. Finally, 20 years ago, my sister Sharon and I managed to quit. However, my older brother, Morris, carried on smoking, although after recently being diagnosed with throat cancer, age 61, he's now doing his best to stop. I was in my 40s when my daughter Emma persuaded me to give up. She came back from school one day crying because her teacher said she, her clothes and her school books smelled of tobacco smoke and accused her of being a smoker. She's never smoked. My husband, Frank, said he'd quit if I did. I tried and failed on my own. Then I was encouraged to go to the Stop Smoking Services. I never would have succeeded without the help they gave me. It's stories like that that give me the passion to keep on going uh, and make me really angry when I hear Simon talk. And no, I won't be congratulating Forrest for 50 years of trying to deny the harm caused by smoking. 
and the fact that they promote this as a lifestyle choice when we know it's an addiction and an addiction which largely is an addiction acquired in childhood. Simon, do you want to come back on that? I certainly do, um, because Deborah so often brings up this issue of forest funding from tobacco companies. We've never made any secret of it whatsoever. And uh, the fact but is it's good we've for people, it's good for people, it. it's good it's good for people to know something that where you, where your where your money comes from that you're advocating the continuation of people smoking and you are paid for by smoking uh, tobacco companies. Let, let's also talk about the um, amount of money that uh, Ash gets from the government. They get a lot of taxpayers' money. And over the years, that's probably amounted to millions of pounds. They don't tend to talk about that very much. And the point well, maybe, is... But, sorry, 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 sorry. Maybe that's because the government has a has an interest in, in improving the nation's health, because that's the government's responsibility. The government's not, uh, the, the government's not making a profit from funding a campaign group to, to encourage people to give up smoking, is it? There is a, there is a difference there. Yes, but in a free society, I think it's very important that people stand up for freedom of choice and personal responsibility. Yeah. And we believe that adults should take more uh, responsibility for their own health. And there cannot be a sane adult in the United Kingdom who isn't well aware of the health risks of smoking. And what we don't need is further rules and regulations designed to force people to quit. That's simply wrong. And I'm afraid listening to a lot of what uh, Deborah says, there's a lot of hectoring going on there. And as she's read out something, well, perhaps oh, I, I think that's a bit... We're going to have to leave it there, Simon. And I think uh, let's not. Turn, turn, we've had a we've had a perfectly civil discussion up until now, actually reflecting on some of the the facts and figures of what's um, actually happened. We don't need to to start uh, being rude to each other. That was Simon Clark there from director of Forest, the pro smoking campaign group. Uh, we also heard um, throughout uh, that uh, half hour from Deborah Arnott, the chief executive of Ash, which is the campaign group which is marking fifty years of uh, campaigning uh, against uh, the risks of smoking, uh, which is why we were having this discussion. We also heard from Patricia. Hewitt, the former health secretary, and uh, Robert West from the University College London. Uh, I'm sure you all have views on that, but it was an interesting topic to discuss. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, can you get to number 10? Email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. And we'll get you on very soon. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.